Good morning, everybody. You're able to join us in person. Good morning, everybody online. We're glad you could tune in. Uh, hey, have you guys ever been in that situation where you have this big project that you, you're ready to get started on, but you just you don't really know where to get started on it? Like, it's not that you don't have motivation. You want to do it, but just finding the place to begin, narrowing that down, sometimes that's the real challenge of these big projects. I've had a lot of those experiences in my own life. One in particular I think of uh, was in high school. A buddy and I, we felt challenged to, to have this charity auction to raise money for missions work in Africa. And so we thought, okay, we'll, we'll put out a call at our local church, a few other churches for donations. And it was working okay. But then a local newspaper got a hold of it and word got out. And then it started to like really go okay. And we got donations, like a lot of donations. And we were using a storefront in a business complex. It was empty, and somebody said, yeah, you can use that to, to hold all this stuff. And so we were getting these donations. And, and being high school boys, it never occurred to us to try to organize this stuff as it came in. We just kind of put it wherever it fit. So then a few days before the auction, we, we looked out at all of this stuff, just, just an ocean of stuff covering every square inch of the floor from wall to wall. And we didn't even know where to begin to organize this stuff. So I think we just stared at it for about an hour, just kind of saying, what, what about, no, what about this? Uh, eventually, we just started kind of making piles that sort of made sense. And then we did that thing you're not supposed to do where you touch the same item like two or three times as you move it around. And somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, we finally got all this stuff divided up in a way that made sense. And then the auctioneer and his crew came in and redid the whole thing in a couple of hours. And, and, you know, it just goes like getting started is sometimes the hard part. You just don't really know where to begin. Last week, we started a series called Let Justice Roll. And we're looking at this idea of justice, particularly as it applies in a, a societal or a social context. How do we live righteous lives in our community and work for justice, social justice, I guess you could say. And last week, if you weren't able to join us, I'm just going to summarize because it, it was a dense and complex uh, message. The, the thrust of it is this. We were asking, can the church get behind the social justice movement as it manifests today? And due to some philosophical underpinnings and some differences in objectives and ends, the answer that we, we came to is no. This isn't really something that we can support or get behind. That's not a comment on the social justice movement of the past, just as you see it on the news today and some of the things it's working towards. So last week was all about finding where we don't get started on this journey of social justice. But that still leaves us with the problem of where do we start? Where do we begin working for the kind of social justice that God calls his people to? And don't, don't be mistaken. God does call his people to be doers of justice. But where do we start? That's hopefully the question we're going to be starting to answer this morning as we look at the book of Amos in the Old Testament in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open that up to Amos chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, feel free to follow along on the screens to the side. We'll have our passages up there. Probably a better option, download the FCC Monmouth app if you haven't, and tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. You'll find a bunch of tools. One of those is called Sermon Notes. It's got our passage pulled up, ready for you to engage with, along with the sermon outline and some place for you to take some notes yourself. Also, a couple of links in there that you can utilize, uh, some suggestions for next steps, things like that. It's a great tool to have. So where do we, as the local church, 
living in a rural community in western Illinois, get started practicing this idea of biblical social justice? Before we answer that question, I think it's worth our time to take a minute just to appreciate the specifics of that question, particularly one part. Where do we, as the local church, get started in this social justice journey? Being the local church is not a small thing. It's a very important part of who we are, and it's a very important part of how God works in this world. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it that if, if biblical social justice is what we're trying to see enacted in our community, it makes sense that it would start first with God's people. Biblical social justice has to begin with God's people. I mean, where else would it start? And that seems like a no-brainer, but the reality is history shows God's people have this remarkable ability to forget very basic parts of being God's people. And Amos is a phenomenal illustration of this. In case you missed the summary or the introduction last week, Amos is a prophet of the Lord who prophesies during a time when the, the people of the Hebrew people are divided politically into two different kingdoms. In the south is the kingdom of Judah, and in the north is the kingdom of Israel. Amos is from Judah, but he's sent to Israel in the north to preach and to prophesy. And in Amos chapter 1, we read Amos begin by launching just this litany of judgment oracles against all the nations surrounding the kingdom of Israel. And most of us, I'm going to just guess, we probably are not super familiar with the geography of ancient kingdoms that no longer exist. Is this, is this a fair assumption? I don't know why we would be unless we're Jeopardy champions, but we're Bible nerds like me. But, but so, so if we were to look at a map and trace all of these nations as they show up, what we start to notice is that they form this circle all the way around the kingdom of Israel in the north. And it's not like Amos was going to all of these places and preaching these judgment oracles. He'd be run out of town. Likely, he's going to Israel, probably the city of Bethel. That was kind of where the temple was, where the capital kind of was. And he's preaching these oracles of judgment, and the Israelites are listening to them. And as they're hearing this, it's almost certain that they're going, yeah, all of our adversaries are going to get what's coming to them. God's going to send judgment on them. We love this. This is great news, Amos. Please continue. And this likely would have been the sentiment until Amos gets to the kingdom of Judah. And at this point, all of those cheers, hey, keep going, probably would have turned into, whoa, pump the brakes. Uh, what, did, what did you just say? Because Judah was a sister kingdom to Israel. Despite their political division, they both still belong to the same God under the covenant, which is sort of a, a religious contractual obligation that God made with the Israelites. I will be your God, you will be my people. And the understanding was that God, because, you know, we're his chosen people, he'll take it easy on us. Or he won't judge us as harshly, maybe even at all, for our sins and iniquities. Because we're his people. It was a misunderstanding that we hear that and go, why would you believe that? But you can believe a lot of things if it sounds good. But hearing that Judah was going to be judged for their violations almost certainly made people in Israel go, wait, wait a minute. If he's going to judge them, what does that mean for us? 
And all of a sudden, that, that big circle that's being drawn by Amos's prophecies, they realize we're not being elevated above our adversaries. This is a bullseye. God's taking aim, and we're right in the middle of it. And that's when Amos launches into the longest judgment oracle. It's like three times longer than any of the others because God has something serious to say to his people. Just because they were his did not exclude them or, 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 or annul them from practicing justice in their lives. Rather, it held them even more accountable for practicing judgment in their lives because they had experienced even more of his truth, even more of his goodness and his kindness. In some ways, if, if you're a parent of multiple children, you probably have seen this or experienced this. Uh, we, we have two boys. One is going to be five in a few weeks, and one will be two in, in a few months. And they love to rough house and wrestle. In fact, they were wrestling before church this morning. And I love seeing that. I love seeing them get together and get along. But inevitably... The young one, you know, he's in that stage where, like, he doesn't have full control of his motor functions. He's very jerky. He'll go to, like, tap his brother or pat his brother lovingly, but instead just, like, smacks him across the face. You've seen that? Like, he just, the jerky motions. He doesn't mean it, and so we discourage that, but we don't discipline because he doesn't know any better. You know, you know, Benji, we don't hit. No, don't do that. But my five-year-old takes this a very different way inevitably he takes it personally and with full intent and malice will often hit his brother back and we handle that very differently in a more disciplinary fashion because he does know the difference he does have control of his body sometimes he looks at me and then hits him anyway and that that really just you know and he knows that there is a way that we handle this in a way that we don't and that we don't hit back we don't do that and so because he knows better he is treated differently. That's sort of how Israel is in this situation. They know better. They know better because God has revealed to them his expectations. He has revealed to them his truth. He's also revealed to them his kindness, his mercy, and his compassion over and over again. In fact, in the middle of Amos's judgment oracle, God even recounts a lot of the ways that he has shown these people his kindness. We read about it in Amos chapter 2, verse 9. And this is God speaking to the Israelites. He says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. And the Amorites, that's like a catch-all term. If you read the book of Joshua, you read about the Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all these ites that we can't pronounce anymore. Uh, This is just a catch-all term for those peoples. I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below, which is to say I drove them out entirely. And I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? And the response would have been, yeah, God, I mean, we we know the history. We know the stories. It's, It's all true. And God continues, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. And so God is really recounting here the history of his kindness and compassion towards these people. He says, you were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. You were the victims of injustice, and I rescued you. And I brought you out of that captivity and led you as you wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. And by the way, provided for you quite well. We read in the book of Deuteronomy that their their clothes didn't give out and their feet didn't swell, despite wandering around aimlessly for 40 years. 
God cared completely and utterly for them. And then after their wanderings, God says, I brought you into this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And I drove out nations that were so much stronger than you and so much better equipped than you. I gave you victory. I gave you this land. God was kind to his people, compassionate to the Israelites. And he had intentions for them. Not just to possess a land and then just stay there, but to be a, a light to the nations, to be an upright and just beacon of truth in the world. That's why he, he says he sent prophets and Nazarites. These were men called by God, ordained by God to, to bring his truth, to bring correction, to bring direction, to lead them. But how did the Israelites respond? He says, you told the prophets to shut up. We don't want to hear a word from the Lord. You made the Nazarites drink wine, which was breaking their sacred oaths and forcing them to turn their backs on their callings. I sent you people to guide you, and you shoved them away because Israel, truth be told, did not want to live like God's people. They did not want to practice God's kind of justice, and they did not want to extend the kind of compassion that they had been shown. They may have been the people of God in name, but they had forgotten how to live like people of God. And us today as the church need to bear that example and recognize that could just as easily be us. This is an ancient warning for us. Because like them, we are people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we have experienced his mercy and his compassion beyond what we deserve. Every single one of us we're lost like sheep, wandering in the wilderness, defenseless. Our sin had distanced us from our shepherd. And the only thing that was guaranteed us was a grave that ended our existence. There was no hope. But God sought us, and he pursued us, and he sent his son into this world to find us. And not just to, to rescue us and tell us everything's going to be okay, but to die for us. That our sins and our injustices could be paid for and atoned for. That we could be made new and given hope and given a life eternal with God. To be brought into the light. We were foreigners and exiles, but through the work of Jesus, God brought us into his kingdom and made us citizens. And even into his own family and made us sons and daughters and gave us a place of belonging forever. We, we didn't earn that. We don't deserve that. That's compassion at its finest. We have seen and tasted that the Lord is good. And there is tremendous blessing and benefit to that. But there is also expectation. That having experienced that level of compassion, we would extend it to those around us. That we would live like the Lord's people. And that concept of compassion is a crucial concept that we have to really embed into our understanding. Because as we keep reading through Amos, what we're going to discover is that our expression of biblical social justice is rooted in our experience of God's compassion. Our expression of biblical social justice is rooted in our experience of God's compassion. We're going to unpack that as we start to dig into what Amos has to say about the Israelites. What were they actually doing that was so unjust? Let's look at Amos chapter 2, verse 6. This is the first of many charges leveled against them. 
This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. So once again, if you weren't here last week, that, that's a, a rhetorical advice that gives this understanding of escalation. They have crossed a line. Like their sin has overflowed beyond what God is willing to tolerate. So here's the accusation. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now we can probably guess kind of what's involved there, but to really fully appreciate the, the heinous act of this and the injustice, let's do a little history lesson. Amos lived at a time period in, in this ancient world, in this region, where the Assyrian Empire was on the rise. They had recently or were about to conquer the nation of Aram, which was Israel's greatest adversary. That left a vacuum that Israel was more than happy to occupy. They had a king who had been on the throne for, for quite a while, and so that brought stability and strength. And so they really became a power player in the region, which put them in a position to negotiate some very lucrative trade deals with the surrounding nations. And so cash crops, for the purpose of export, became a real big focus for the upper class and the merchant class in this society. There was even some legislation, that's not an accurate term, but edicts and so on, some stuff put in place that required these rural farmers working their family land to produce these cash crops. The problem was that these particular crops had the tendency to deplete the soil. If you know, I don't know a lot about agriculture, but even I know you're supposed to rotate your crops so that like the soil can be replenished that way. And if you just keep planting certain things again and again and again, your soil is not going to be as productive. And that's what started to happen. They would have a yield that wasn't quite enough to cover their expenses. And usually if you have a loss or shortfall like that, you would rely on your livestock and, and the wool or whatever that came from them. But there was also legislation put in place that limited the amount of livestock allowed in the land because they wanted more of the grazing lands to be used to produce cash crops because everybody, except the farmers, were getting rich. And so you have this yield that depletes your soil. It's not quite enough to cover your losses. You don't have livestock income to depend on, so you borrow a little bit to get by. But then the next yield comes, and it's even less productive than the one before. So now you don't have enough money to get by or to pay off the debt and the interest that you incurred last season. So maybe you got to borrow a little bit more. And you can start to see how you can fall into a very deep hole very quickly. And it's not that the farmers and those in this lower class were doing anything wrong or illegal or morally, morally questionable. They were just trying to make it in a system that was designed this way. That's why verse 6 calls them the innocent. And that's where our verse really comes into play. It says that they're taking advantage of the innocent and buying them for silver. What would happen is if you couldn't cover your debts, is your debtor could take you to court and could purchase you as a debt slave which meant that there would be a certain time limit that you would have to work as maybe a day laborer to work off your debt in order to, you know, make things square and even. But if you're spending your days working for someone else, that doesn't leave you a whole lot of time to plant your own fields and take care of your family and, you know, try to make an income to get by. So you can see how that's kind of a, a not, not a real great situation. But it gets even worse because as that second line in verse 6 reminds us that they, uh, they're buying the needy for a pair of sandals. And that expression, it could mean one of two things, most likely. On the one hand, it could talk about the relatively small uh, debt that is being taken to court. Like a pair of sandals at Walmart, like flip-flops, like two bucks, I think, which has gone up, actually, because I remember they used to be 99 cents back in the day, right? 
But so, so sandals don't cost a lot of money. For a relatively small debt, you're taking somebody to court and forcing them into forced labor. That, that's not okay. That, that's an overreaction to this. The more heinous possibility has to do with this really weird custom we read in the book of Ruth, where exchanging a sandal actually grants somebody, it's like a symbol, grants somebody the right to purchase your property. So here's what might be happening. We're not sure, but it's possible that these farmers are falling into debt and they can't cover their losses. And so in order to help cover that debt, they're being forced or strongly encouraged to allow these merchants and wealthy class people to purchase their family land. That's going to severely limit their ability to provide for their family and get by. It's also going to severely hinder their children and grandchildren for several generations. So we have an entire family who's going to experience generational poverty because of one small debt that's probably not that big. That's not right. But it is legal. In fact, all of this was legal. I mean, if you borrow money, you're expected to repay it, right? But yeah, that's, that's the understanding. That's the law. The law permitted debt slavery. If you can't pay it off, you can work it off. There's an agreement that we'll come to. The law permitted that. The law permitted you to buy somebody's ancestral land and, and family land if they couldn't afford it. They could use that to offset the law. All of this was legal. The merchants in the upper class have done nothing legally wrong. So what's the problem here? Let me give you a little more modern story that kind of illustrates the injustice. Uh, up in Chicago, not that long ago, there was a young man named Kamari Williams. Uh, he, he had aspirations of becoming a burglar. So he broke into somebody's house, uh, wasn't very good at it, woke the guy up. He came out. There was an altercation, and Kamari shot the guy in the leg, and then he fled. That same night, he tried to break into another house. Again, not very good at his job, but woke that person up, and he was arrested. And he was charged with attempted murder on the guy who he shot. So he's taken to jail, and he's sitting there for a while awaiting trial, and the gunshot victim actually winds up dying. So now his charges are elevated from attempted murder to straight-up murder, which I looked it up. That is the legal term, straight-up murder. That's the charge. But here's where the problem happens. The paperwork for elevating the charges went to the DA's office, and for whatever reason, sat there for a little over a year. And this is, this is outside my wheelhouse, but due to a precedent in a previous incident that was similar, Kamari Williams walked out of jail, a free man, charges dropped. Now, by the law, in the letter of the law, everything was followed, it was allowed, it was permitted, things were fine. But I have a feeling that for most of us in this room, hearing that, something just doesn't set well, knowing that's how things shook out. And that story illustrates a really significant point in this conversation of biblical social justice. What the law allows or permits can sometimes fall short of what God insists upon. What the law allows or permits can sometimes fall short of what God insists upon. In this context of Israel... The law permitted the merchants and the wealthy class to demand these repayments, to take on debt slaves, to purchase this property. But what God insists upon for his people who have experienced untold compassion is to recognize the human element involved and to extend compassion. Because it's not just money or property involved here. We're talking about people and people's livelihoods. We're talking about 
generations of people being negatively impacted and, and, and hindered because of this act. Is that just? God seems to have a problem with it, even if the law allows it and permits it. God insists that his people who have experienced compassion recognize the human element involved and extend compassion. We're not talking about criminal offenses here and just waving those away, because that's not just either. If there's a victim in a situation to deny them justice, that's not just. We're talking about social and civil action here, interactions with people that we interact with every day. Here's kind of a, a small everyday example of what this can look like. Um, I, I had a professor in college uh, who had this, he had several children. His boys, they, they, you know, they were well-built, stocky, stout boys. But one of his sons reached that age where like his body was well-built, stocky, and stout. Like he was a man, but his brain was still 13 years old. And he didn't recognize, really, he's back in that toddler stage kind of, where like his body awareness just wasn't fully there. He was way stronger than he thought. He just, he was in that weird, awkward teenage stage. And his friend was in a similar stage. And they were roughhousing and, and one, something happened and the friend jumped into the living room couch and broke the back off of it. He's a big boy. And so my professor comes home and he walks into his living room and he sees his couch kind of split in half. And he sees these two boys just like with these shocked looks on, his, on their face. And he's in this situation where he is mad because it's his couch. It, couches are not cheap. It was a nice couch. And he has every right to lay into this boy. He has every right to demand repayment or to say, you're going to mow my yard until you die just to repay for this couch. Like he has the right to do this, right? But as he thinks about it, he asks, are you okay? The boy says, I'm okay. And he says, that's all that matters is fine. He says, well, what about your couch? He says, it doesn't matter as long as you're okay. And when he told this story to me, I'll never forget the way he phrased it. He said, a broken couch is not worth a broken boy. There's a human element involved here. We're laying into this young man or demanding, you got to come up with the money to buy this couch, which to a 13 year old is maybe this insurmountable feat that might actually do more damage to him than what that couch experienced. And that's not just a broken couch is not worth a broken boy. A deference for compassion allows us to practice a biblical kind of social justice. So what does that look like in our lives? In, in real life. Again, we're not talking about criminal offense, but social and civil infractions here. It, there's a lot of different ways that we can show this deference for compassion. I'm going to just use kind of the, the um, um, material aspect of it, because that's what our, our passage talks about. It's easiest to see there. It, it is, have you or your property been wronged? Have you experienced that kind of infraction? The law would permit and allow that you demand repayment. It, it might even go so far as you're allowed to bring civil suit. Who knows? But is that what's best for the people involved? Because the immediate repayment, demanding the full sum, depending on what it is, that might do a lot of damage, not just to a person, but to a family of people that are kind of hard getting by. That might put them in a hole that is really hard to crawl out of. Or, you know, demanding that you repay fully now, that might, uh, that might really hinder their life at home where the stress starts to build and maybe, you know, the kids get involved. That, that could be really unhealthy for a family. That could be really damaging to an individual. So is there a different way? Can, can we show compassion? Can we recognize the human element involved and come to some sort of understanding? 
I mean, maybe we, we do installments. You know, we can stretch out repayment over a period of time that works for you and your situation. Do they have time or a skill that is valuable to you that they can use to repay? That's not going to put them and their family in a bad way, but, but could actually benefit you and repay a debt. Is there some sort of arrangement that can be worked out? Is it possible to lessen the debt? Or maybe if you're feeling incredibly merciful to just ignore it altogether. I'm not saying that these are all things we must do, but these are the kinds of questions that compassion would lead us to ask. Because our things and our stuff and our property, while important and valuable to us, are not nearly as important as these people that are made in God's image. One of the refrains from last week's message is that all people are important regardless of any factor. And if that's true then we as people who have experienced compassion must extend it thusly. A deference for compassion will aid us in practicing this biblical kind of social justice. So there's one way that Israel helps us maybe find a starting point here. But there's another charge that we need to look at that can give us a little more insight. This one comes in Amos chapter 2, verse 7. So it says that they, meaning Israel, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. So the, the picture of trampling on the heads of poor people like you're walking on the ground, that paints a picture, right? That kind of gets the point across, that there is a disdain for those of low means. But if we were to look at the literal Hebrew, what we find is an even more vivid picture, almost of like shoving the poor off of the road that they're walking on, pushing them out of the way. It is an utter disdain for the poor and the debtors in this society. And as we keep reading Amos, we get a better picture of what's going on. We read in, in chapter 2, they deny the poor justice. But in chapter 5, it's saying that the, the wealthy, the rich, the upper class, they're bribing officials and they're bribing justices to make sure that the poor don't even get heard in court. And if they do, it's definitely not going to be a fair trial. The system is corrupt. In chapter 8, we read that the merchants show utter disdain for the poor by mixing in chaff with the grain and selling them low-quality, inferior, like wheat and barley and stuff. And you would do this for two reasons. One, it's going to make your, your, weight, your wheat weigh more, so you have to pay more for less stuff. And nobody's going to pick out the chaff and the wheat kernels individually. You're going to have really bad quality food that's going to hinder your livelihood. It's just mean. Why would they show such disdain for the poor in this society? The answer is really not complicated. It's because it enriched them. They benefited a great deal from showing this disdain to the poor, protected their interests. And we need to recognize, we can say, oh, that's heinous, who would ever do that? That same kind of apathy happens in our culture and our society today whether it be the poor or somebody of different political ideology or somebody of different ethnic and cultural practices, the, the cultural outsider, the person that sits outside of our normal cultural bubble, it's very easy for those of us in America to, to maybe assume things of them or pass judgments on them or look down upon them in some way because it enriches us. If the stereotypes are true, if the assumptions are true, it's way easier to not care about them and not consider them and their plight. And we can keep on living our lives the way that they are. It's very comfortable. But is it just? God would seem to say, no, it is not. 
We could talk about different political ideologies. We could talk about cultural and ethnic backgrounds. We're going to talk about the socioeconomic component because that's what our, our passage is talking about. It's easier to make the connection. Sometimes when we, we, we hear these stories or we hear the assumptions and the stereotypes of those that struggle to get by, we've all heard them before. Sometimes it sounds like, wow, they're just lazy or uh, they, they don't want to work or they just want to scam the system or, or whatever. We've all heard them. Maybe we've said them. And sometimes stereotypes exist because someone somewhere is proving them true. I, I was listening to the radio um, a while back. I don't even remember what the program was, but it was the talk portion of the hour. And they had this woman from Texas call in, and she was bragging because somebody was paying for her house and paying for her food and paying for her bills and bought her kids Christmas presents. And, and she just got to sit at home and smoke weed all day and even said that the guys on the radio were the suckers because they were getting up and going to work. What a bunch of chumps. Well, obviously, everybody was irate at hearing that. Sometimes the stereotype exists because somebody somewhere proves it true. But for the overwhelming majority of other people, the stereotypes are not true. And likely there is a story that explains why their life looks the way that it does. For those of different political ideologies, maybe there's a reason that they hold certain views that are different from ours. For those of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, maybe there's a reason that they behave a certain way in culture or they act a certain way in conversations is because that's the norm in their cultural and ethnic context. For those of, of different socioeconomic means, maybe there's a reason why their life looks the way that it does. That's not a stereotype or a judgment. Maybe they suffered a debilitating injury. Maybe they made one choice. This is maybe not the best choice that led to another choice that maybe wasn't the best choice, that just kind of led to a hole they didn't know how to get out of. Maybe they just made one bad choice one time, and it had consequences far greater than they could have imagined. I read a story from a woman this week who chose to remain anonymous. Very responsible woman, had a career, had a savings account, was funding her retirement, had a house. For all, you know, from the outside, it looked like her life was together. But she made one mistake. She fell in love with a guy in prison. And when he got out, they got married, and he bled her dry. And she lost her house, and she lost her savings, and she lost her IRA. Somehow she lost both of her dogs because she loved this guy and just kept choosing to love him regardless of all the red flags. Today... She suffers from a, a debilitating pain in her lower back and lower legs, so finding a job is very difficult. And she lives off a, a social security check, a small one, and lives a very, very humble life. None of the stereotypes apply to her. Her life is not explained by assumptions or judgments or the societal narrative that we are encouraged to believe. Rather, it's explained by her specific story that we would never know unless we showed enough compassion to recognize her inherent value and spoke to her about it. That's a skill that our society is quickly losing, the ability to talk to one another without assumptions, without judgment, and to hear your story. Why does your life look the way that it does? Chances are it looks that way because of something that could just as easily have happened to us if not for the grace of God or in a little bit of luck. Part of having compassion and extending compassion to others is taking the time to know them. 
to talk to them, to hear the story of why they're in this situation, why, why their life looks different than yours. Recognizing God cares about this person. They matter regardless of any other quality. And having heard somebody's situation, knowing them, it becomes way more difficult to ignore them or to make assumptions and judgments of them and to carry on with our comfortable, contented lives as if they don't matter, as if we are often tempted to do. Again, as people who have experienced a great deal of compassion, it is upon us as the Lord's people to show a deference to compassion and extend that to others. This is the beginning of practicing a biblical kind of social justice. We could look at Israel's charges. There are a lot of them, and we could keep going. We don't have that kind of time this morning. The short of it is this. The people of God had forgotten how to be the people of God. They had forgotten the tremendous mercy that they had been shown, and so they weren't showing tremendous mercy in response. And there's a lesson for us as people who are asking this question, where do we start? Where do we begin practicing a biblical kind of social justice that honors the God-given value in all people and upholds a righteous relationship between the two of us? And the answer, a beginning point, is have that deference for compassion. Because you as the Lord's people have received compassion. That's not going to solve all the social justice issues of our world. It's not going to end racism. It's not going to end the poverty. It's not going to end all these other problems. But if we're looking for a beginning place, a place where we as the local church can get started, can work in our homes, can work in our families, can work in our broader community in Warren County, this is a pretty good place to start. Compassion leads to just and righteous relationships between us and the people we care about and the people we interact with. So here's my challenge for all of us. Choose to show compassion this week. That's not an assumption that we don't show compassion. The challenge is to show more. Get to know somebody outside of the comfortable cultural bubble that we live in and get to know their story. Without judgment, without assumption, get to know them, and you will probably find that you start to care about them. And when you care about people, you want to treat them justly. Have this opportunity this week. If you suffer some sort of wrong or infraction, consider ways that you can show compassion and extend mercy as you have experienced mercy and compassion. Again, this doesn't mean overlooking criminal offense. This doesn't mean overlooking dead entirely necessarily. But how can we recognize the human element involved and extend mercy to people? That's the beginning of a biblical kind of social justice. And that's the place where we as the local church have to get our hands dirty and get started. Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love. You've rescued us from sin. You've rescued us from death and darkness and hopelessness. And you have been good to us. In recognition of that good and in recognition of that compassion, let us be people who respond thusly and who extend compassion and mercy and goodness to those around us. That's what it means to be the Lord's people. So let us reflect you. Let us shine for you. Let us be a just and upright church in your name for your glory in the praise of your goodness and who you are. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. We're going to all stand. We're going to sing. We're going to praise God for his grace. Let's sing.